Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. It's our weekly visit with Lauren Sauer time, and it's always something we look forward to. Lauren is Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at Johns Hopkins University, which, of course, is uh, assisted by the philanthropic efforts of the owner of this radio station. But, Lauren, thanks for joining. Very thrilled today because Reuters is reporting that the first doses of vaccine could be dished out to seniors in nursing facilities and uh, nursing homes December 21st. What's your reaction? Yeah. You know, I think we all needed a bit of good news, and we all were watching with um, a lot of anticipation to see how the meeting went yesterday with the FDA. And so it's just great to see everyone collectively working towards this emergency use authorization. The outcome looks promising. I think we're waiting to see the final details of what will be within the, the emergency use authorization. And then we're hoping to see, you know, almost 3 million doses go out sometime early this next week. So, Lauren, there's an interesting, fascinating story on the Bloomberg Terminal today saying how the U.S. ranks 32nd in vaccine buys on a per capita basis. Um, Where are you or where do you think the U.S. is in terms of having a proper supply, sufficient supply of uh, vaccines to vaccinate its population as, I guess, you know, quickly as possible? Yeah, I think we would like to see um, we would we would have liked to see more doses secured, but the the challenge will be in administration. So the one benefit of this um, somewhat slower rollout will be that we really um, are very careful with these initial doses. Um, I think I saw that about 2.9 million, so the of the initial available 6.4 million Pfizer doses will go out um, in this, you know, hopefully early this week. And that will give us time to really um, perfect the supply chain and the distribution. Uh, As everyone knows, I think by now the Pfizer vaccine has some challenging cold chain storage, some challenging distribution issues. And so um, using this time to start a little bit slow, not super slow. I mean, we have a a vaccine in the year, which is absolutely incredible um, to to really make sure that we're not going to waste any doses, that we have a plan for how we're accessing these harder to reach populations, um, that we're getting it to the people who need it most right now is critical. I I do think that there is going to be a need for massive scale up um, that we're not really quite ready for. Um, And and I haven't seen that story yet, but it's it does make sense to me that we will need to improve um, that capacity. I, I think as more vaccines come online, particularly ones with more improved cold chain storage issues, um, we'll see that number tick up. Is there any reason to suspect that it will be difficult to scale that up given the difficulties we had, you know, bringing in PPE, for example, or other sorts of uh, things that we needed very badly earlier in the year? Yeah, it's. I mean, that's a great question. I think it's something that we're all a little bit worried about. You know, we have not seen significant changes to um, how our national supply chain has improved. We have a little bit of improved PPE situation, but we're still having tons of challenges with net, with national level testing, with a you know a, a national level strategy for testing, a national level strategy for resource allocation. Um, and this is this is no different. We're relying on the states to truly figure this out, and um, we're getting support. But but the scale up is going to be critical. And I think we'd like to see more activity, maybe around the Defense Production Act, around um, some alternatives to 
to production scale up. And then, um, you know, many of us are seeing backups in our ability to uh, obtain freezers and dry ice. And so these all have to be worked out in these next few weeks or else um, it doesn't matter how much vaccine we produce, we won't be able to distribute it safely and effectively. So, Lauren, I guess initially here, the market's going to look like, you know, this, the, the, the demand for these vaccines is going to exceed the supply. But at some point, presumably next year, mid next year, you know, that, that dynamical kind of change and we'll, we'll have plenty of supply. And the question will be, um, will enough people want to take the vaccine? Do you expect at some point some type of public relations campaign may be needed to to get people to convince them to, in fact, take the vaccine so that we as a society can achieve herd immunity? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely think that. I think rebuilding the trust in science across our country is going to be incredibly important in these early weeks of vaccine distribution. I think people trust their primary care providers. People trust um, individuals they know who are getting the vaccines. Um, to be spokespeople, but that's a heavy burden on the people who are getting these first rounds of vaccine. Um, So we can't put all of that reliance on them. We have to build um, an education campaign and a um, trust building campaign and roll it out as soon as possible. We can't wait until we already have the vaccine ready to go. Um, And I actually think that we're going to see a little bit of this in this these first few phases. So I think there will be healthcare workers who are hesitant. I think there will be um, elderly and vulnerable populations who are hesitant to receive vaccine. And I think we need to, we, we, many people have already started working in this space, but we need to have this as a primary focus, not a secondary focus to production. Yeah, because we do have a couple of days head start on the UK, but there are some reports out of the UK that might make people a little more hesitant, uh, allergic reactions and so on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think everyone is watching the UK with sort of bated breath to see what happens. And and we have to be prepared to learn, you know, in real time from what's happening there and um, and apply very rapidly lessons learned. And I think that'll happen even within the process of writing out the EUA, building distribution strategies. You know, all of those things will be impacted by what's happening right now in the in the UK. Hey, Lauren, thank you so much once again for joining us. We always appreciate uh, your perspective. Lauren Sauer, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, uh, joining us for the weekly discussion of COVID and the vaccine. It's time to bring in Barry Rittles, expert opinion provider, and he has a great column out today. Of course, Barry, just to remind everybody, is a Bloomberg Opinion contributor, also founder of Rittles Wealth Management and the host of Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. So, Barry, I presume that you've been watching this week's activities with absolute combinations of disgust, horror, (laughs) awe, amusement, just like the rest of us. You have a great column today saying that Airbnb and DoorDash showcase the best and worst of Uber. Explain what you mean. Sure. Well, start with the basic model that Uber created. You know, we we all got consumed by the frat house and the... uh, uh, Travis uh, getting thrown out as, as CEO, but really they, they created a fascinating model where they identified a massive inefficiency in a high-margin business. They created an app that made it really easy for consumers to, to consume those services, and you know we've all used the Uber app. Uh, the ability to say, I want a small car, I want a big truck, I want a luxury car, and track when it's going to arrive and, and not have to mess around with cash or anything. Uh, they, they just made that sort of transportation service 
so much better than it was. And both DoorDash and Airbnb have followed that same basic process. Um, with Airbnb, it's an, a massive addressable margin with uh, an average transaction price of $160 and a, uh, an enormous profit margin. Uh, the problem with DoorDash is that we can't say the same thing. So it's interesting here, yet investors feel what, – what do you make, I guess, of the market this week and, and, the, and the market's willingness to bid these stocks up so dramatically? Uh, what did you take away from it? You know, some are saying that the bankers really blew it here. Um, you know, how often do the bankers get it right? And, and be aware, there's a ton of hindsight bias involved when, oh, you should have priced it higher. Well, yeah, you, you'd say that after the fact. So to be fair to the bankers, yeah, it's, it's easy to tell what the demand is after the fact. But very often, the, the companies want a really high um, number. The The bankers want to make sure that there's enough appeal um, in the shares that there's demand not only for the IPO shares, but the quote-unquote shoe that comes out afterwards, the subsequent shares that the, the bank sells, and, and they want to create a little excitement and buzz around the name. And, and uh, you know, you could argue they could have priced this $10, $20 higher. Um, ultimately, the founders, the shareholders, they all benefit, the insiders. Uh, so the company ends up with uh, 4 or $5 billion in cash instead of 6 or $7 billion in cash. In the scheme of things, when the price runs up, if they want to do a secondary uh, in six months and put some more stock out, it's certainly an option. The question, I suppose, really, that we'll have to wait some time to see the answer to is, can these companies, you know, have a quarter after quarter of revenue growth and profit, Barry? Well, for Airbnb, with the, the much higher um, transaction price, I mean, you could go look at, at homes for rent for two, three, four thousand dollars uh, a night on Airbnb What's the most expensive pizza you're going to get delivered from, from DoorDash? <laughs> yeah. that, that's the big difference between the two business models. They both are sort of positioning themselves as pandemic plays. Hey, get out of the city, get out of your apartment, come rent a place out in the burbs or you, where you can drive. You don't have to go through TSA or on a plane. Drive to an Airbnb and, and you know wait out the pandemic. Seem to be a pretty good line that, that investors... Um, uh, bought into uh, DoorDash and, and some of their competitors like Uber Eats and, and uh, Grubhub and all the others. There have been a series of mergers there. I don't even know who's who anymore. But um, they also tried to make that same sort of pandemic. Uh, hey, you don't have to go out to eat. You know, We'll do a touch-free delivery. You pay for it on the credit card. We'll leave it on your doorstep. And you know, they, they certainly have been growing very, very quickly. The difference is uh, the people I know who are who are currently using Airbnb um, almost to a person. Everyone says, "Of course, we're going to continue using it after the pandemic." Uh, the food delivery services are a, a short-term substitute for going to a restaurant, and I suspect that post-pandemic, the various food delivery apps, and, and that certainly includes DoorDash and all the rest. Uh, we have to presume there's going to be some sort of fall-off in usage 
The question is, is it modest? Is it big? Is it giant? I don't think it's modest. I think it's going to be more substantial than that. Yeah, Barry, I actually, uh, I, I agree with your analysis of DoorDash there. And again, I was, uh, I guess, surprised at how well embraced uh, that IPO was and the valuation it's garnering. So that brings me to my, my question, Barry. Are you drawing any conclusions as it relates to the state of the overall equity markets about how these two deals were received and how they are being valued? Does it suggest to you maybe a certain level of frothiness in the market uh, akin to maybe what we've seen in some past bubbles? Um, so frothy is a great word because it doesn't commit you to saying that this can't continue <laughs> any further. So I, I'm with you on that. And, and remember, Alan Greenspan's infamous irrational exuberance speech in the middle of the dot-com boom that eventually blew up, that was 1996. If you were a seller on that speech, you missed an ungodly amount of gains over the next four years. Remember, the market didn't peak until March 2000. So frothiness, and, and we certainly have seen this in, in some SPAC issuance um, and some Bitcoin purse and, and other crypto-related um, items. Uh, yeah, there, there's definitely some speculation going out there, and, and I, I'm not in the camp that wants to blame Robin Hood uh, on everything. Uh, that's an aspect of it. Boredom, people lacking the ability to go out and play, to go to casinos, to watch you know, sports, we, we keep watching one football game, whether it's college or, or professional after another, uh, get canceled. So, you know, you have a lot of, of people who are home bored. Uh, that might count for some of this. Um, and, and, you know, it's been such a long time since we've had a, a sexy, exciting run of IPOs, companies have been staying private yep. for longer. You know, Air Airbnb is a perfect example. Sure. That That's a fairly mature company that has um, both strong revenue and, and profit growth. And, you know, they had right. a few missteps in the beginning of, of the pandemic, and they righted they themselves pretty it. quickly. Yep. Yeah, they did pivot pretty quickly. Barry Ritholtz, thanks so much for joining us here. Barry Ritholtz, Bloomberg Opinion columnist and host of Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Also founder, chairman, and chief investment officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management, giving us his thoughts on the markets. Well, I'm sensing a trend here in the world of business. First, it was Stevie Nicks selling part of her catalog uh, to some investors for about $100 million. And then just recently, Bob Dylan selling uh, his catalog to Universal Music Group for what is expected to be at least $200 million. What is going on here? Well, we know we have somebody who has the answers. Lucas Shaw, Bloomberg Entertainment reporter, uh, joins us here. So, Lucas, it seems to be a trend here of maybe some of these aging artists really cashing out here. Yeah. You know, they are seizing on uh, something that, that has really been happening in the music business now for uh, three to five years, which is that the value of these copyrights has soared because of streaming services, uh, which have more broadly listed industry revenues. And so, you, and they've also made them a little bit more stable. And so that's, main, that's meant that a lot of other investors have looked at music as a really appealing asset after years of dismissing it, frankly, as an industry that was, that was dying. Um, and then the pandemic only added fuel to that fire because you have a lot of artists who might ordinarily be going out on tour and making money. Instead, they're stuck at home. So I, they're doing a mix of, hey, I want some extra cash to pay for X, Y, and Z, and maybe I'll start planning for my, whatever my future is in the case of, of Stevie Nicks and Bob Dylan, uh, who, who are both 
older in age. Lucas, are they going to get securitized, these these securities, uh, or how does it work? Because I could imagine that in the future, people are going to be listening to, you know, Bob Dylan's top, you know, boots of Spanish leather for the next, you know, centuries, but something like Dark Eyes mightn't get played once in a million years. Yeah, I mean, the thing, so what Bob Dylan and what Bob Dylan told was his songwriting catalog, which can make money in a couple of different ways. You know, songwriters get paid if a music, if a song gets listened to on a streaming service or if an album gets purchased, but they also get paid if a song gets played in the radio. They also get paid if you do what use, uh, perform a sync. You know, you license that song for an advertisement, for a movie, for a TV show. So people can get pretty creative. With someone like Dylan, as you know, you know, people are listening to his music, although I, he's not a huge act on streaming. I'm sure that a lot of his money also comes from licensing it for, for advertisements. Um, you know, you, you will have people who will just amass enough assets that they think it will be a kind of a consistent generator of revenue. And we've seen that play out time and time again in the music business. I mean, there are, um, you know, there are investment firms that invest in, in publishing catalogs as well as more traditional music investors. It's something that has long been seen as a relatively stable asset and something that people go to often kind of in times of uncertainty in the market because even as people are, are losing their jobs, they're still listening to the radio, still listening to music. Lucas, you know, it's, it's interesting. I followed David Crosby on Twitter, and he admitted that basically – He's going to pursue a similar type of deal for his music because because of the pandemic, he's not touring. And that's a big source of revenue for a lot of um, uh, music acts. And streaming doesn't pay really anything at all to publishers and artists. Do you think we're going to see more of this? Maybe from some, again, some aging acts who may own their catalogs. It's a kind of a financial yeah. necessity. Yeah, I think a lot of those acts that have relied on touring to continue to, to pay the bills will go this route. As he's noted, you know, streaming has ge- generating additional returns for the broader industry. On an artist-by-artist artist basis, the numbers are pretty small unless you're a Drake or a Taylor Swift or a Post Malone or an Ariana Grande, especially if you're an aging act. If you're, if you're a David Crosby, chances are that a lot of your fans are those that may still not have converted to streaming. They're buying physical. Physical sales have gone off a cliff uh, kind of during the pandemic. Or you're able to get them to go and see you perform, and you can't do that either. So really, your only source of, of money would be selling your catalog, or if you can get somebody to you know put an old Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young song on the radio, or on, <laughs> excuse me, on the TV show. Well, speaking of Taylor Swift, what happens when she gets old and wants to get rid of hers? Does she have two, does she sort of have a bidding war between her and, and the private equity firms that bought her already recorded songs? Well, so that, that's, again, to keep in mind, what sh- the people who just bought her first six albums, those are the recordings, and she will own her re- She owns the recordings for all the new music she's putting out. Universal distributes it, but she ultimately owns the masters. Those rights revert to her. Publishing, she actually changed her publishers in the last year. She used to be at Sony ATV. She is now at Universal. I don't know the particulars of that deal, but I would imagine she worked out sort of more of what's called an administration or distribution deal, where in the long run, Taylor Swift's going to own her music. When you're as powerful as Taylor Swift, or in the case of Bob Dylan, you get to demand ownership because everybody wants to work with you. So the re-recording, Lucas, what, what, what does that change for you know, the, the, the stream of money? The re-recording well, she, her old albums? Yeah, so because she does not control the recording rights, 
uh, or the actual recordings from her first album, what she would do is she can control her publishing rights. The songs that she wrote, she would then make new recordings based off of those lyrics and re-release it and try to make it so that those are the songs that people play. But what Mm -hmm. we don't know is, let's say Taylor Swift does end up re-releasing her her first six albums in some form, which she has talked about doing. If you're Spotify and you're putting together the This Is Taylor Swift playlist, which is like their equivalent of a best, a greatest hits, and you want to put one of those early Taylor Swift songs do you pick the one from the initial album, which is the version that everybody knows, or do you put the re-record on there? If you are putting together some curated playlist for a user who really, li- you know, who wants to listen to kind of uh, country pop and that some of those early Taylor Swift songs again, which version? And that's going to, you know, I'll be very curious to see what the streaming services decide to do because they obviously want to maintain good relations with Taylor Swift, one of the biggest acts in the world. But there's no telling, there's not really a precedent for fans gravitating towards the re-record yeah. over the original. Um, so it's, it's a tricky situation and one that, you know, we'll learn a bit more about when we actually see what Taylor Swift is doing with the re-recorded music. In the meantime, she just put out her second album of the year and she both did. future albums. <laughs> I was listening to some of it this morning. <laughs> Evermore. Uh, Let's give her an yeah. ad while we're at it. <laughs> um, All right, I, Lucas. I will admit I have not on that note, we all sort of drifted off there into a little bit of daydreaming as we think of Taylor Swift on the British Moors, recording music with American pop stars and, uh, you know, getting groups in like Jack Antonoff and so on to make sure that she has uh, another hit record. And uh, Lucas, thank you for keeping us up to date. Lucas also out with a story today about um, you know, top streamers and Ariana Grande being the, the, the top act in the world right now, which is a fascinating yeah. read. So Lucas, thanks for joining us. And Paul, thank you for uh, for indulging me in that last little uh, reverie <laughs> <fun>. there. <laughs> it's an amazing story, the economics there. This is Bloomberg. All right, let's get to something uh, just a little less optimistic now, and that is the one billion empty hotel rooms for the year. We've been obviously looking at various numbers throughout this year. It's been a year of numbers, and this is not one that we enjoy talking about. But Patrick Clark is our real estate reporter, and he will talk about it to us. Patrick, how on earth did we get here? A billion rooms have gone unsold, or practically uh, at least 962 million through last week. Yeah, well, uh, when was the last time you stayed in a hotel? Yeah, um, good point. <laughs> you know, there's there's uh, the conference business, which is about a, a third of hotel demand, is is completely on ice. Um, the you know, bid, there's very little business travel happening, and and while there are uh, you know some hotels that are in the right kind of beach locations where you can drive to them uh, from a you know from a big city that are doing okay, you know, across the board, uh, this is this is really been the worst year in probably the history of the modern lodging industry. And uh, when you stack up all the empty rooms, uh, pretty soon we will cross um, the 1 billion unsold rooms mark. Hey, Pat, when, when you talk to these hotel companies, what is their thinking as to how uh, their business may recover as we start getting vaccines into the marketplace there's a you know expectation of a big ramp up in the first half of the year how are they thinking about the timing and and you know the back half of this year and so on i have to say they're 
less optimistic than I am. I'm okay. I'm thinking about my next vacation. As soon as I get vaccinated, my family's yeah. going to the beach. But, I'm with you. But um, the I I think the I think there I think hotels tend to be more focused right now on the tough months that they have ahead of them. So, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, so, go ahead, Vani. Yeah, I mean, the question I have is, we know that you know, we, we didn't pay to spend nights in hotels, but how many of these rooms remained empty? How many of these hotels got involved in schemes to rehouse homeless people, for example? I think that's been fairly marginal. I mean, I do think there, there, there certainly has been a, um, you know, a downward drift in the types of business hotels have been willing to take, right? So, like, if you're you know, a a business traveler who is um, booking the room on their corporate credit card and not thinking a ton about the price they pay is a good type of business. Um, and, you know, the, I, I would do the sort of more, uh, you know, the, the richer the expense account, the, the better the business that is for the hotel. Um, the, you know, I, um, I have, uh, the last time I was in a hotel was about a month ago and it was a nicer hotel than I normally would have stayed at because, because it was offering a good rate and I got there and there was an airline crew checking in. And, you know, I think if you talk to, to big hotel owners or managers, they'll tell you, yeah, well, we, we are starting to take, um, you know, types of business where we have to negotiate a lower rate than we would have otherwise. So, you know, your flight crews probably are staying at better hotels. Um, you know, there certainly are uh, medical workers. There's probably some government travel. Um, you know, even even people who normally would have sort of recovered from a, a you know maybe like a, a minor surgery or something in a in a hospital are instead possibly checking into a hotel, thinking that you know better to be outside of a hospital environment. So there's there's mm. there there are bits of business available, but, you know, none of it makes up for uh, what the hotels have lost. Well, Patrick, I'm with you. As soon as I get the shot, uh, I'm hopping on a plane uh, and going somewhere, uh, that's for sure. Patrick Clark, real estate reporter for Bloomberg News. He joins us on the phone from New York City talking about, again, that same very difficult situation we hear for the leisure and hospitality businesses. And now the question becomes for a lot of them as vaccines uh, get into the marketplace. What is the pace and scope of the recovery that you can expect from an airline, from a theme park, from a hotel. Um, and I guess a lot of it is just we'll have to wait and see, but expectations are starting to build uh, positively. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.